Welcome to History Notes, a podcast from the Greensboro History Museum, where we are making history by talking history. History Notes is created by the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum, located at 130 Summit Avenue, Greensboro. History Notes intends to provide instructional resources for our area educators and content for all learners both in and out of the classroom. From K-12 to graduate level students, teachers, administrators, and the overall community, History Notes is for you. Let's examine the individuals, trends, and events that have helped shape who we are today. And don't forget to take notes. It's now time for History Notes. Good day and welcome to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. I'm your host for today, Rodney Dawson. These podcasts are intended to be a resource for our educational community to include our K-12 classrooms, institutions of higher learning, and any individual groups that will find these sessions useful. I just recently left the classroom myself as a teacher to take on the position as curator of education at the museum, and I was thinking how could I best add resources for our uh, learners, hence the podcast, which brings me to our guest today. We have Dr. Eric Mortensen, and I'll call Eric. Uh, Dr. Mortensen, Eric, is the Associate Professor of Religious Studies and the International Studies Coordinator at Guilford College here in Greensboro. He's held the position since 2004. Yeah. Consequently, you're about 15 years in. And your program, as I looked, uh, the East Asian Studies strives to open hearts and minds to new ideas while preparing students for a variety of careers by nurturing a range of skills. And we certainly hope today's podcast will continue in that vein. Uh, so, um, uh, Dr. Mortensen, Eric, thank you for being here. and appreciate you taking part in History Notes today. Thank you. All right. Um, looking over your bio, you've traveled quite extensively, uh, e- even as a young man, uh, particularly in the, on the continent of Asia. Yes. Um, and your career choice came down to a coin toss. Between oh, you, the, you found that. <laughs> yeah, I did archives. find that. Yes. <laughs> between the theater and Tibetan studies. Yeah, I wasn't sure at the end of college whether or not I wanted to pursue a career in, or try to pursue a career in theater or go on in academia. And yeah, it actually did come, came up tails. So okay. I, I went to grad school. Yeah. All right. And you <laughs> completed your graduate work at Harvard University? Yes. Various name. Uh, how was that? Long and wonderful. It was full of really, really interesting people. Okay. Basically, it was one of these places where you found your days filled with people who were far, far smarter than you. Oh. And you look around and you just try to try to do your best to keep your head up and, and, and learn from them and absorb the wisdom that they have, just the way they think. Not necessarily what they think, but how they think. And I think the influence of that will be lifelong for me. All right. Now, you're from Massachusetts as yeah, well. Yeah, I grew up there, yeah. So you're very familiar with the school. Mm-hmm. Where did Asia come into play? That's a good question. I'm not sure how it first started, probably from children's books when I was a kid, from my mom reading to me. Um, but when I was 16, I was an exchange student in Malaysia through the AFS program. And I spent time living in rural Malaysia, and it was eye-opening to me. I was a high school student at the time, and I had never expected a world so different from the one I had sort of grown up with. I wasn't really sheltered as a kid, but, you know, I had no idea that people sort of um, all over the world had intimate lives and, and worldviews and religions that were so radically different yet intelligible and understandable and beautiful. Um, so it was very formative for me. So by the time I got to grad school, I was certainly interested in Asia. Now you say AFS. What does that stand American Field Service. It was an exchange program designed by ambulance drivers from World War II who had mm-hmm. a simple philosophy after the war that if you know someone in a foreign country, you're far 
less likely to want to go to war with wow. that country. Uh, so, isn't that a concept? That's a beautiful idea, yeah. yeah. Okay, and um, well, because of your travels, that's one of the reasons we ask you in today. Um, we're coming, uh, as we tape this podcast, we're finishing a New Year's celebration, and today mm-hmm. we're here to talk about uh, New Year's celebrations, particularly, particularly when it comes to East Asia. Mm-hmm. And we're going to touch on Lunar New Year and Losar New Year. Wonderful. Okay, and Lunar, correct me if I'm wrong, um, primarily originated in China. Well, the Lunar New Year is something that we don't know the origins of because it's so old. Okay. Um, Certainly it got codified in China, and the influence of the Chinese Lunar New Year spread across a lot of the rest of Asia. But clearly people were celebrating the winter solstice all over the world. Um, So the longest night Mm -hmm. and sort of the rebirth of the year is something that's influenced Abrahamic religions Mm -hmm. um, and all across Europe and in native North America as well. So the idea of sort of the depth of winter, the cold, dark, longest night, and the idea of the rebirth of the year is something that is age old. We don't know the beginnings of it, but it being matched to a calendar that's directly visible in the moon without calculating the solar calendar comes from time immemorial as far as we know. We don't really quite know. Now, I did read that the (coughs) calendar was reset according to the emperor that was in power at the time. Yes. So in Chinese history, we often date things by emperor reign. So you give the name of the emperor and the year of their reign, their third year of their reign. And Mm -hmm. so as historians, we'll often look back at texts and look at the colophon of the text, which will tell us who commissioned the particular book and um, where it was written and by whom in what year. But... In other literate traditions in Asia, we have different dating systems. So, for example, in Tibet, it's based on the the name of the animal and the element that associates with a certain year in mm. a, what we call a sexagenary cycle, So, it's a, which means 60 years. Okay. So a 60-year cycle is based on 12 animal years and five elements. So 12 times 5 is 60, and we have a 60-year mm. cycle. So sometimes we don't know if we come across something like a earth pig year, we don't know um, necessarily what year that was. It's with it's either, say, I don't, I'm just making this up, but it could be like 1260 or it could be 1320. Oh. So we have to use other evidence to sometimes date some of these texts, like when the author lived and things like that. All right, you mentioned the uh, recognition or the semblance of the animal mm-hmm. uh, and the 12 animals that I'll, I'll name out, the rat. The mm-hmm. ox, the lunar new year, the rat, the ox, the tiger, rabbit, dragon, snake, horse, the sheep, monkey, rooster, dog, and the pig. You got it. And I do know last year was the year of the dog. Yeah, currently it's still the year of the okay. dog. Which is my year, by the way. I'm a dog. So um, often in China when people meet you, they'll ask you, what animal are you? Mm. And they mean by that, what year were you born? What animal year were you born? So I'm a dog. I'm 48 years old, so mm. that's my fourth 12-year cycle. So it's rolled around to the dog again. Okay. I was now born in 1970, so that was a dog year as well. What's the expectation? Okay, you tell someone I'm a dog. What are they? Is there ah. some- <laughs> that's. You know, I wish I could answer that with more detail. I don't know all the nuances about mm-hmm. what the animals mean. They do have certain representations. So dogs are um, sometimes arrogant. I suppose mm. that's appropriate. But um, <laughs> there's um, stronger signs than others. There's I mean, if you think about, if you read an American newspaper today and you read Mm -hmm. the horoscope section, 
You know how in the horoscope section, the predictions of what the next year will bring for you or the next week or day will bring for you are written as vaguely as possible so that they can be widely applicable to anybody. You can read yourself into them and say, oh, that was all about me, right? Right, right. Similarly, um, the valences of understanding of what a dog means or a snake means are broad enough that people can see themselves in it. Okay. But there are certainly animal signs that are more appropriately matched with other animals. So, for example, certain... People who are dragons should not marry someone who's a tiger, for example, mm. because there's like conflict in the air or something like that. So there's better matches between them and there's sort of antipathy between uh, some of them and there's more attraction between others of them. Oh. But, I mean, you can't help when you're born. Right. So you sort of are whatever animal you are and okay. you don't have to fit your personality to it. It fits to yours. So. Okay. Now this year it's uh, starting on, the, on February 5th. Right. So this this year will be the pig year, mm. and it's currently the dog year. So even though it's 2019 now, it's still not New Year, as you pointed out, until February. So people who are born in January of 2019 are in the 2018 year, the way we look at it in terms of animals. So they're, someone who has a birthday of January 17th is still going to be a dog. They won't be a pig unless they're born after February. Okay. Yeah. Now, the, the pig, as I was researching, the pig is the 12th, the final. Uh, various reasons that they One was that the pig overslept. Uh, another story is that the pig, the wolf, destroyed his home. He had to rebuild his home before he could make the journey, so he arrived late or last. I like that one better, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Are there more that you've heard? Oh, there's lots and lots and oh, lots. Okay. And they differ in different regions. I think what's so exciting about the 12-year animal cycle is that the understandings of it are local. So if you go, for example, to northern Vietnam, you'll find that the people have the same animals, but they understand them differently because okay. they understand those animals differently. The same thing's true in northeastern China versus southwestern China or in Tibet or in Korea. So you're going to have vari- variations of this. Yeah. So there could be an, an economic influence. For instance, the pig is a, a semblance of wealth. Sure. And so if you come from a poor nation... Maybe the pig is not a symbol of wealth. That's an interesting question. I don't know. Um, I think these developed before sort of the modern notions of who's poor and who's rich, at least the way we understand it today. Um, I think poverty was understood for sure, but I don't think, like, for example, thinking about the wealth of China today has anything to do with it because these ideas grew so long ago. We have to think back when those ideas right. came to bear, was the country wealthy or the country okay. wealthy? But, but yeah, sure, of course, there's definitely economic valences in some of this. There's also understandings of um, farming and mm-hmm. harvests and craftiness and all kinds of other, like, snakes and rats and right. things like this. Yeah. Well, you know, and you talked about farming, which leads me to my next. Um, I want to talk about the traditions, uh, particularly clothing. Hmm. Um, as it relates to it. And then I want to kind of transition over to uh, something you're probably more familiar with, um, uh, Losar New Year, which is uh, Tibet and a few other nations. But uh, with the clothing, as it relates to Lunar New Year, um, what is the significance of the new clothes? It's so Uh, important to wear new clothes. Well, that's a wonderful question. I think when we think about holidays here, 
it helps us to think about that the holiday doesn't begin necessarily when that day rolls around, but in the days leading up to it. Mm. So, for example, the preparations for Christmas are just as exciting as Christmas. And, you know, think about the holiday cheer starts right after Thanksgiving around here, right? right. So, but the same thing's true for New Year. It's, it, New Year is understood to be an important time in the days leading up to New Year as well. So, for example, in a home in, in many places in Asia, um, you would do all the cleaning before New Year. You'd sweep out all the old, all the things that were of the past, all of the dirt, all of the pollution, okay. all of that kind of idea. And then come New Year, you wouldn't sweep because it would be the sign of sweeping away the good luck. Right. The New Year brings in all the new things. So gifts that you give people are new things. You would mm-hmm. never give like a hand-me-down clothing on New Year as a gift. It would have to be something brand spanking new. So when you give children gifts on New Year, you give it in a little red envelope called a hongbao, and that little envelope contains money. Okay. Kids love it, and you give them brand new bills. You wouldn't get like a wrinkled $5 bill. You'd get a brand crispy new bill. So regardless of how much money is in there, it's got to be new money, new clothing, new everything. So to usher in sort of a forward-looking, fresh start. Right. Now, uh, with China being an agrarian society, um, uh, there was only one harvest per year in the north and two to three in the south. So, That's right, yeah. Which means that you, didn't, you couldn't splurge. You, couldn't, um, um, you had to save. And so when um, um, Lunar New Year came around, it was your opportunity to go out and buy new things and kind of splurge uh, oh, yeah. to celebrate the holiday, uh, which you pointed out was why something new was so important. So uh, the gift of giving took precedence over someone buying something on, for themselves? Definitely. Yes, it was all about giving okay. yeah, specifically. Um, it's also a time of visiting. It's a time of family. It's winter after all, right? So. Right. In places where there is only one harvest, for example, it's it's kind of the cold, bleak days of winter. Okay. So it's time when people gather around the fire and the hearth and the warmth. So New Year was traditionally a time when people gathered for family. Even today in China on New Year, it's the largest migration of humans in history mm. every year. So would they come from the United States, you say? Back oh, to, yeah. Okay. And even city-to-city city travel, the number of tickets and individuals traveling outstrips the total number of the population of 1.3 billion people in China every year. It's a massive migration of people. Everyone goes, quote unquote, home, which can mean to your home village, to your ancestral home, to your... And on the second day of the new year was when wives could visit their birth parents. Mm. Because in China, when you get married, you, you move in with your husband's family. It's one of the reasons that traditionally in China people wanted to have baby boys rather than baby girls Mm. was because if you had a girl and you raised her, she would get married and go to her husband's families to take care of those parents. So if you had boys, your social security in your old age would be taken care of. If you had a girl, you would lose that. So this notion of patrilocal marriage makes a big difference. And it was only on that second day of New Year that wives could go home and visit their home parents. Mm. So a special time for family and gathering and things like this as well. You are listening to History Notes, a production of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. To discover and learn more about the discussion and our exhibits, visit the Greensboro History Museum located at 130 Summit Avenue in Greensboro or visit greensborohistory.org. 
That's GreensboroHistory.org. Now let's get back to History Notes. You're bringing up some very interesting points. Um, I wanted to touch on one of my favorite subjects, eating, so I want to talk about food, but I may not have the time. But I did want to say uh, the God of Neum. Yeah. Is that, am I pronouncing it correctly? Again, yes. The story is a beggar. Um, uh, save, was going to save the town because everyone took shelter because Neum was coming and the beggar uh, painted or covered the, the doors with red, the color yeah. red, and then the fireworks uh, what, uh, prevented him or scared, uh, stopped the approach of Neum. Uh, so tell us a little bit more why red is so significant in fireworks. This is, this is again, a great question. Um, the, the relationship between red and yen is a little bit confusing. Um, some historians question whether or not it's really such an old idea. This may be a relatively modern myth that's been sort of painted onto the tradition. But the story goes, as you said, that there's this monster, this creature, which mm. somehow might resemble a tiger, which might be what the tiger dance is all about. Okay. Uh, that's debatable. But anyhow, the... Um, this monstrous creature that would come and eat everybody was scared away by the firecrackers and by the red color. So what we know is that Yen doesn't like red. Mm. So if you can wear red clothes, paint the doors red and things like this, then and light a lot of fireworks, which are, of course, colored red, okay. um, it scares away um, it scares away lots of things. It scares away ghosts. So you set off firecrackers when you open a new business to clear it mm. out of ghosts and at weddings and all kinds of things like that. It's to drive away the evil, drive away the spirits of that which is harmful. Okay. Now I want to move on and talk about Losar New Year. Sure. And I know that's a subject you're very knowledgeable and passionate about, and hopefully we won't have to make this a part two if I run out of time here. Uh, but Lo means new. Lo means year. Yo means Sar year. Sar means new. Sar means, okay, I mm-hmm. had it backwards. It's okay. Uh, and so Losar is uh, originated in Tibet. Yeah, Losar just just the Tibetan name for New Year, and okay. it was um, also celebrated more or less at the same time period, um, based on the lunar year. So think about it this way: if you if you are a people who gather for a festival based on the moon, mm-hmm. that which which is a great way to do it because it doesn't say you're nomadic, right? You can look up in the sky and see the phase of the moon and know how long you've got to get to an X place where everyone's going to gather for a big festival. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the, the moon is a really great calendrical tool for everybody to know when things are happening, from harvest celebrations to New Year celebrations. But because a lunar month is 28 days, and 12 of them would add up to 336, and you take a Gregorian calendar, 365, those don't match. Mm-hmm. So eventually what's going to happen is the harvest festival is going to move further and further from the harvest if you celebrate it on a new moon. So the way they fix this is they add a month. Mm. They stick an extra month in there. They call it intercalary month. So every so often you'll have two marches in a row. That brings it back so that the full the new moon or the full moon happens more or less at the same time of year every time. And yeah, the Tibetan name Losar is the name for their lunar new year. Yeah. Now, you know what? Uh, um I think I know why. I read why. Why do you know so much about, you, you mentioned the word nomadic. Hmm. You traveled with the nomads, didn't you? I did. I've lived for periods with nomads, yeah, doing research and with friends and stuff. Yeah. All right. So you, you picked this up, um, the explanation that you just gave. You It was a lived experience for you? Yes, um, to a degree. I mean, okay. I'm not Tibetan, but um, I've spent time in right. Tibet on New Year as well, yeah, and okay. with nomads, yes. Okay. Uh, so... Um, 
explain to the audience the relationship between Tibet mm -hmm. and China. That's a big, complicated question, mm -hmm. but a good one. Um, Tibet is a cultural sphere, I suppose. The Tibetan people live in a region which is now predominantly controlled by and part of the People's Republic of China. The history of the Chinese relationship with Tibet is long and complex. There's been periods throughout history where China had a more intimate relationship with Tibet and sometimes controlled parts of Tibet. And then during the Qing Dynasty, which is the, the long dynasty that led up to basically the modern period where we think about um, the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China in the 20th century. When Chairman Mao came to power in 1949, he immediately set his eyes on consolidating the People's Republic of China. and turned his attention to the West, mm. among other places, and basically occupied Tibet. And in the next decade, you saw basically the Han Chinese state consolidate its borders around Tibet, Xinjiang in the West, other parts of the Southwest, and all of the minority nationality peoples of the way the Chinese understand it, mm -hmm. were incorporated into the, into the motherland, and the Tibetans included. And this was accompanied by violence and occupation. So it was not something the Tibetans were on board with and to this day. So mm -hmm. it remains a contentious issue and what the Tibetans see as an ongoing occupation of their country, China sees as an integral part of their country indisputably. Okay. So there's deep tension here. China's very powerful, Tibet is not. Right. So it's a very contentious issue, it's a very politically sensitive issue, mm -hmm. um, but the vast majority of Tibetans live inside what is today the People's Republic of China. Uh, and just quickly, uh, briefly, you've met the 14th Dalai Lama. I have. And uh, his NWA approach, the middle way approach, um, yeah. is received amongst Tibetans well, but outside of Tibet is not acknowledged or... You, do you see it come to fruition? I think the wisdom in his path of nonviolence mm -hmm. towards resistance against the brutalities of occupation is one that is deeply wise. Okay. Um, the, the Dalai Lama has not been in Tibet for since wow. 1959. Um, Tibetans largely follow his teachings. The Chinese find them threatening. They think of him as a separatist and they think that he wants independence for Tibet which he has said that he does not. He wants dignity and respect and human rights and freedom of religion. The Chinese aren't buying it. The Chinese basically find him to be a thorn in their side, and so they um, dismiss him and make him enemy number one of the state, even though his path is one of nonviolence. Wow. So um, he's elderly now, and what happens after the Dalai Lama passes remains an open question, but... I think the rest of the wider world has noticed and respected the Dalai Lama's method of resistance through nonviolence, um, but it doesn't seem to have made enough of a difference with an economic powerhouse and military powerhouse right. like China. Now, because of this uh, content, uh, contentiousness that exists there, has it dampened the celebration of Losar? Yes, very much so, particularly in recent years. Um, well, during the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 76, Chinese New Year's was basically not celebrated anywhere in China, mm. including Tibet. Um, there was sort of a dismissal of all that was old stylistically. So New Year celebrations were forbidden in China. And 
since basically late 70s, early 80s on, there's been a resurgence of festival celebration in China of the New Year. In Tibet, in very recent years, there's been a sense that celebrating one's religion and practicing one's religion is deeply suspect by the Chinese state. So it's, a lot of things have been shut down. Most people are not allowed to celebrate most religious holidays. But because it's important in terms of optics from the point of view of China that the Tibetan people are happy, mm-hmm. they actually require people to celebrate New Year. And so Tibetans choose to not celebrate their mm-hmm. New Year as a way of protesting against the imposition of happiness from the state. Okay. So it's, it's very fraught. It's very, <laughs> it's very complicated. People in rural areas, people celebrate anyway. I mean, when I was last in Tibet for New Year's, people splurge on fireworks and, and do the home visits and basically celebrate anyway. But there's always a quiet sense of solidarity with the idea that... Um, this does not mean that we're happy to be citizens of the People's Republic of China. Right. We're still deeply saddened by recent events and the ongoing um, difficult situation for Tibetans. So there's a sense of sort of pan-Tibetan solidarity about that, but people will still want to try to be happy inside of that space to the degree they can amongst their friends. So, it, yeah. Understood. Thank you for mm-hmm. the insight. Okay, I'm going to um, try and close out on a food note, something lighter for me. Okay, good. Um, Lunar New Year, we're, te- we're talking spring rolls, dumplings, and uh, the long noodle. I guess if you get the long noodle, yeah. it's meant to represent long life. That's right. The longer, the better. The longer, the better. Uh, however, when you look up Losar New Year, mm-hmm. uh, it's called dough balls. And yeah. it could be a surprise <laughs> was found inside that dough ball. Exactly. This, this, you find this in China as well, too. Actually, okay. in some parts of China, they have dumplings that have um, little surprises inside of them, from charcoal okay. to wool. Right. I mean, imagine biting down on a nice <laughs> dumpling and getting wool inside of it. It's a nasty feeling. Or salt or sugar. I mean, and each represents something mm-hmm. different. So there's, if you get lucky, I mean, this is for kids largely. But, oh, okay. I mean, everyone enjoys it. But when you get your bowl of noodle dumplings in a sort, sort of a soup... And it's, mm-hmm. co- it's cold, it's winter, and everyone's inside, and you eat your dumplings, and you get the one with with sugar in it. So hey, you you're going to have a lucky year. Right. Basically, these are sort of to presage the auspiciousness or not of the next year for you. Okay. Similar to the idea that, like, oh, there's so many signs of New Year that mean things. Long ago, for example, the idea of the, the cuckoo bird mm-hmm. was the herald of spring, and if you think about it, the longest night of the year is in December. But New Year is more like late January or February. Right. It's several moons after the winter solstice. So it's actually closer to the beginning of spring. In fact, in China, they call New Year the spring festival, not the winter festival. So New Year is sort of the beginning of spring. And it used to be that if you heard a cuckoo bird, whatever you were doing at that moment would be meaningful in terms of the auspiciousness or not of your unfolding next year. So if you were in the middle of a quarrel or an argument with your spouse right. and you heard a cuckoo bird, I mean, you're going to have a year full of arguing. If you were in the middle of something much more lovely, eating delicious food or laughing, then you'd have a year full of laughing ahead of you. The cuckoo who was the herald of spring and the herald of the rain and the dragons, because dragons are the ones that bring the rain and are the water spirits associated with the emperor who's responsible for the harvests which need rain and there are the rivers 
all, all of these associations come with the notion of spring and newness and renewal. Uh-huh. So basically, the key about thinking about New Year is it's not the midwinter celebration. It is the spring celebration. It's a 15-day period in China that culminates with the Lantern Festival, which is thought, really thought mm-hmm. of as the beginning of spring. So it's really the, the new spring, not the midwinter celebration. Uh-huh. In Abrahamic religions, or particularly in Christianity and in Northern Europe and elsewhere, we see the notion of the death and rebirth of Christ, which of course is supposed to be um, really around Easter, right? Mm-hmm. But still, we think of the birth of, of Christ as Christmas. And it's been moved from when it really took place to midwinter because it made the religion more palatable to local people where Christianity was spreading because there was already in place a celebration of the death and rebirth of the year. So the notion of a new birth was matched with the winter solstice. So in a lot of senses, this notion of the ending of something old and the beginning of something new was midwinter. But in Asia, and from the Chinese influence all across Southeast Asia, which celebrates things New Year's more in April, February to April, basically, but all across from Korea to Japan to Tibet to Mongolia, you start to see um, the new year being associated with the beginning of spring, not midwinter. Right. So quite different in terms of its understanding when the new year happens. Tibet as a place where um, Losar gets codified with different calendrical systems based on different periods of Tibetan history. There are several different ways of calculating the calendar, and they don't agree with each other. Mm-hmm. So as historians, it becomes very complicated to calculate historical time periods. But um, it is influenced heavily from both India and China. That's the other peculiarity, is that some of the Buddhistic systems came from India, mm-hmm. but a lot of the Chinese astrological concepts influenced both divination systems and calendrical systems in Tibet. So Tibet is sort of squeezed between and up above China and India, and influences from both of them have mixed over the centuries to um, build a very strange, partly Buddhist, partly non-Buddhist, um, heavily Chinese-influenced calendrical divinatory system. Right. Yeah, so it's its, own, it's it's its own creature by this point. Wow, I think we need more than one podcast to discuss <laughs> this in, in, uh, thoroughly. But it, from what I've, to sum it up, from what I've gathered, you know, whether you're talking about Lunar New Year or no, a Losar New Year, it's a newness, uh, a springing forth of a new beginning to forget the old and uh, bring together family and, and, and prosperity and fortune for a new year. Would that be correct? That's exactly it. Okay. You hey. nailed it. Well, if I take your class, I'll, I'll wait on that A. Exactly. Okay. You, got, you already earned it. <laughs> so for everybody out there, happy female earth pig year in 2019, which will start on February 5th for Tibetans and for Chinese folks. And speaking of that, we do have uh, the Greensboro History Museum. We do have a second-generation Asian-American exhibit uh, on the third floor of the museum that is about to leave us. It's been here for a year, and it's about uh, um, to leave our space in February. So uh, Can please I get up there. say one last quick thing mm-hmm, yeah. to your listeners, um, which is to encourage people to try to go to China. Mm. China is... Beautiful, full of the most generous-hearted, kindest, loving, fun, gentle, open-minded, brilliant humans. You should go to China. Everyone should go to China. China is an amazing place. It's incredibly complicated, and it's incredibly fascinating. And 
you'll be welcomed there. And it's easy to make great friends there, very deep, very fast. So I would encourage everyone to go to China and go before New Year because travel is nightmarish mm -hmm. on New Year and stay through New Year. It will be a life-changing experience that you'll never forget. It'll be absolutely wonderful. Well, I'm hoping we all have the opportunity to take you up on that. Perhaps we can have you back to talk specifically about China and U.S. relations later. Happily. Okay. Well, we certainly thank you, Dr. Mortensen, for joining us on History Notes, a product of the Greensboro History Museum Education Department. Learn more about the East Asian Studies Program at Guilford College by visiting guilford.edu and search under the International Studies Department. You can listen to this podcast at your convenience by continuing to log on to www.greensborohistory.org under the tab Discovery and Learn, and listen to this and many other podcasts. Thank you to our friends here at Press Play Studios for your hard work, and thank you for listening to History Notes. Thank you for listening to History Notes, a podcast from the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. The Education Department offers several resources for learners both in and out of the classroom. Learn more at greensborohistory.org. Then select the Discover and Learn tab at the top of the homepage. You may schedule a tour, a field trip, or reserve an education trunk for your next lesson. Daily visitors can stop by the museum at 130 Summit Avenue in Greensboro. Admission is free. You've been listening to History Notes, where we are making history by talking history. Tune in next month for a new topic, new discussion, and new insight. This has been History Notes. <laughs>